So some of you might be thinking, why Job? Why a series of messages in Job? We just were in Proverbs. That's, uh, that was uh, a book of wisdom there. And I would answer because Job is a book that deals with why questions. Questions that often befall us when we encounter suffering or pain or trials or tragedies in our own lives or, or in the lives of those around us and even, even in the world around us as we see. Questions of why this? Why me? Why right now? Why so much? Some of you have asked those questions in your life in times of deep pain or suffering. Some of you are perhaps asking them right now as you or someone you love suffers maybe for no apparent reason. Some of you, especially those of you who are younger, youth and children and and those who are younger in life, some of you will find yourself at some point in life experiencing a trial or a difficulty or a a painful circumstance that caused you to ask, why? Why, Lord? And at times we might not have to search very far for the answers to that question. We might suffer for for, uh, you know, some self-inflicted reason of sin is a result of sinful actions or, or decisions. Or it may be from, from hostility or opposition of others to, uh, to our faith and to what we believe. Both of which the Bible says we can expect in our lives. But what about the undeserved suffering? Or what we might call innocent suffering? What about when, as the, as the title of a popular book a number of years ago uh, sought to address, although poorly, when bad things happen to good people? What about when the righteous suffer for no apparent or explainable reason? What about when, when planes are hijacked and, and flown into buildings, kill, killing thousands of people who are just showing up for work on another day or boarding a flight to go visit family? When a distracted driver crosses over the center line and slams head on into a a minivan, killing a mom and all her children on the way to a play date. When a hurricane roars ashore or a tornado touches down or or a wildfire rips through a neighborhood, destroying and, and consuming everything and everyone in its indiscriminate path. What about when the doctor bears the news that your child is suffering a severe disability or is stillborn or your spouse has terminal cancer or you have had a stroke and you will likely never walk again? What about when your life just seems to be one disappointment after another? As your desires and your dreams are constantly broken or go unfulfilled. In the midst of such pain, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional or mental or spiritual, we can feel like we've just been, we've just been blindsided, <laughs> ambushed by some enemy that we don't even know who it is. And the why questions, if they're not spoken from our lips, they will reside and rise up in our hearts. 
And often we don't have any idea what to do with them. The story of Job engages very honestly with the why questions that arise from personal experiences of of suffering that we or those we love may encounter. What Christopher Ashe in his, his, his good commentary on Job calls the wheelchair questions. But it also deals with some of the bigger, more philosophical and theological questions that rise up in these situations. What Ash calls armchair questions. How do we reconcile the problem of evil and suffering with the sovereignty and the goodness of God? What is sometimes known as as theodicy. If you want just a big word to hang on there. How can a just and loving God allow unjust and painful suffering to occur, particularly in the lives of those that he loves, that are his? The story of Job does not shy away from these deep and difficult questions and personal questions. But neither does it give us pat answers or nice, neat solutions to the problem. Job is an honest book and it goes right to the heart of what we think and say not as we gather here on Sunday mornings and and talk to one another but when we're walking through the darkest valleys and experiences of life and we are invited to wrestle with Job and in turn with God in a way that leads us to grasp and experience through these dark times more of God's sovereign grace through the one whose greatness exceeded that of Job, whose suffering goes much deeper than that of Job, and whose obedience was purer than Job's. Job's story is not meant just to help us to deal with our own stories of suffering and pain, although it is meant to do that. But rather through Job, it's meant to to bring us to Jesus without whose obedience and, and suffering on our behalf, we would be left without any answers or any hope in the pains and trials of life. And so that's why we're going to spend some time in Job. And like Proverbs, Job is classified as wisdom literature, it's, which gives us guidance and instruction in how to respond and to live wisely according to, to God's truth and in faithfulness to God and in the midst of the uncertainties and the difficulties of life. But unlike Proverbs, where the underlying principle throughout that book is that living a wise, upright life generally leads to good things happening... And, and living a foolish and sinful life generally leads to bad things happening. Job's experience vividly reminds us and shows us and helps us to understand that such is not always the case. And wisdom comes in trusting God's sovereign hand at work even when life seems turned on its head and when the bottom seems to drop out. Job is a long book, 42 chapters, and most of us are familiar probably with the first two chapters 
where the tragic events of Job's life and the, the behind-the-scene glimpses of this divine counsel between God and Satan occur. And many of us are likely familiar with the last chapters where the result of Job's questioning and wrestling with God is, is answered and restored by God, and that's recorded for us there. But in the middle section, those, those 35 or so chapters of long cycles of speeches and, and lectures to Job and Job's responses and wrestling with, with his friends and with God that, can, that, that seems so repetitive and, and confusing, oftentimes those get skipped over or at least skimmed in our reading because they are, they are difficult to understand and they are repetitive and they are unsettling. And yet, these long, drawn-out dialogues, these, these deep, emotive reflections written in the form of Hebrew poetry, which is meant to express that in, in an even more powerful way, it reminds us that suffering is often a long journey. It does not have easy answers that can be summed up in bullet-pointed propositions or doctrines. It involves grappling, not just with our minds, but grappling with our emotions and our wills and our relationships. And it is often in that long and hard and confusing and uncomfortable struggle that God sheds light. Even if it's just a little light or a glimpse of light. But light to cling to in the darkness. And so even though we will not go chapter by chapter through all 35 of those chapters, there was one, one uh, uh, preacher in England, a Puritan preacher, of course, who preached 400 and something sermons on Job, such that, you know, if your kids were baptized on the day he started, they probably were getting married and graduating, but, or graduating and getting married by the time he finished. We're not going to do that. You'll be glad to know. But we are going to spend a little time in that middle section, just, just wrestling with 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 what Job wrestled with. But today, I want to I focus on the first 12 verses where we're introduced to key players in this drama that set the stage for what is to come. And we'll look at, we'll look at these opening chapters in, the, in the, what's known as the prologue to the book. We'll look at it this week. We have a guest preacher coming, Michael Cochran, next week. And then the following week, we'll dive more fully into the rest of this and, and, and move on. But the... What we see in these opening scenes are, and particularly in these, these, this, uh, these verses that we read, what I want us to see this morning are, are the character of Job, the challenge of Satan, and the consent of God. Because I think those are, they kind of lay a basis for us for what's coming next. The, the character of Job, the challenge of Satan, and the consent of God. The book opens with the words, there was a man, or literally a man, there was in the land of us, kind of rhymes already, whose name was Job. Job is the story of a real person, of a man who lived in a particular place, lived in a particular time in history. He is mentioned by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 14 for his righteousness alongside of Noah and Daniel. James in his letter holds Job up along with the prophets as an example of, of steadfastness and patience in the midst of suffering. 
He likely lived in the, in the patriarchal period, perhaps uh, a contemporary of Abraham, maybe a little before or possibly a little bit after Abraham, but definitely before Moses and, and the giving of the law and the establishment of the nation of Israel. So he was not an Israelite, so to speak. He lived in the, in the region of Uz, a name that's mentioned early in the lineage of, of, of Shem in Genesis 10. And that describes a region that, that lay east of the Jordan River, across from, from the, the promised land on the opposite side of the Jordan River. And is later in scripture associated with Edom and the Edomites. There does not seem to be any significance to his name. He was just a man named Job. But he was a good man. Indeed, he was a great man, as we will see. The first description we have of him is of his impeccable character. He was blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. This, this fourfold description of Job is very key to the whole story. In fact, it, it kind of lays the point of the whole story of Job. It is used two more times in these, these first two chapters by God himself to describe what Job really was. He was a righteous man, not sinless. He wasn't perfect. He will confess in his, in his wrestlings the iniquity of his youth later on. But he was a man of integrity. He was a man of genuine faith and trust in the God that he knew. He was blameless with regard to the, the intentions of his heart. While he, while he may not have known a great deal about God, he knew God. And he feared God. And what he knew of God guided and directed all of his life. People could look at Job and they could say, there is a man above reproach. <laughs> there is an upright man. Blainless described who Job was and it becomes a key point in his questioning of himself and his questioning of God. He pursued godliness in his inner life before God and before others. And because he pursued godliness on the inside, he exuded godliness on the outside. He was upright. He walked the walk. He lived a lot, uh, in relationship with others that, in a way that was good and right and just he was a man of of compassion and generosity and 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 care for the poor as we'll see in some of his his speeches later on he was obedient to the things of God and he was a blessing to others around him and this stemmed from his relationship to the Lord because he was a man who feared God he feared God he had a reverence a piety a humble submission and devotion to God that, who created the world. And what could be known of God by Job caused Job to honor him and to bow his life before him. And as a result, we're told, he also turned away from evil. He avoided that which he knew in his heart was wrong and opposed to God. Job's a good example of, of, of what Paul says in, in Romans 1 where the world exposes and shows us that there is a God and we will either honor him as the creator or we will honor the creation. And Job was one who, who honored God 
And what he knew of him likely passed down from the generations before him. He was a man of wisdom, which is, found, which is founded on a reverent awe and fear of the Lord. And he lived a life of repentance, avoiding evil and trusting in the Lord with all his heart. So again, Job was not a perfect man. But he was a man of faith in God. And as a result of that faith, he was seen in God's eyes. And he was declared by God as a blameless and upright man. He was a righteous man, we could say, because of his trust, his faith in what he knew of God and how God had, what God had revealed to him, all of which we don't know. Job was a blessing of a man and he was also a blessed man. He was blessed with a family, a quiver full of children, seven sons and three daughters. As you look at this description of Job's, Job's uh, uh, possessions and his family, the numbers are important. Seven and three are numbers in Scripture that signify fullness, that signify the blessing of the Lord. And they add up to what? Seven and three equals ten, which is also a number of completeness, of wholeness. The blessing of Ruth to Naomi, her mother-in-law in that book, is described as being more to her than seven sons. <laughs> There's a picture there of the, the fullness of blessing that is, that is seen in Job's family. And not just seven sons, but three beautiful daughters. And, and this family is pictured as the ideal happy family. They would, they would gather together on probably birthdays. It says each son on his day. Probably meant his special day of the year. Likely a birthday of some sort. But they would, they would throw a feast. And who were the first people they invited? Their siblings. They would gather together and they would have a feast and they would eat and drink and, and make merry. And this was not a, a, you know, a debauched uh, 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 celebration. This was, this was wholesome goodness. Like we get together with our family in good times and we enjoy that time. There, there was a large family filled with love and, and, and meals that, with enjoying each other. This was, this was kind of Hallmark stuff. <laughs> You know, this is, this is what you think about. They loved each other. So Job was a blessed man in his family. He was also a wealthy man. He possessed huge herds of animals. And again, the numbers reflect greatness and completeness. He had a, a, a large staff of servants to care for all of this. And his wonderful family and his wealth of possessions, along with his godly reputation, made him the greatest man in all the East. Job could have been a poster boy for the prosperity gospel. He was the picture of the blessings and the blessedness that you would expect for someone who serves the Lord with all their heart. But he was also humble. And he did not take those blessings for granted. He was quite aware that despite the outward appearance and the actions and, and all the things that God had, the good things that God has done, he was very aware that the heart is still prone to sin. The heart is still prone to sin. And so after these family gatherings and the, and the, the making merry together as a family, he would wake up early the next morning and first thing he would call his sons and daughters together and he said we're going to have a little service <laughs> and I'm going to he makes a sacrifice a burnt offering sacrifice on behalf of each one 
offering for each of them before the Lord. Not because they necessarily had done anything wrong the night before, but simply as a precaution against, as he says, one of them perhaps cursing God in his heart. Remember, this is before the giving of the, of the law, the establishment of the sacrifices and the priesthood. And yet Job, deep down he understands and he believes the atoning power of sacrifice for sin. And in deep love and in deep care and, and in, in really urgent almost anxiety for his children... He brings them to the Lord in petition and in, and in sacrifice to guard against their cursing God in their heart. And ironically, in due time, it will be Job who is faced with the temptation to do just that. So we see this man, this character whose name, name was Job, a blameless upright before the Lord who feared God and hated evil, who loved his family who served as a, as a kind of priest before them and interceding for them before the Lord on their behalf. And Proverbs 14.6 says, In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have refuge. Job lived this out, the writer says, continually, day in and day out. But the question is, why? Why? And that's the question that's posed in the next scene that we come to, which shifts from, from, from this earthly description of Job's life and his family to a heavenly council where we're told the sons of God were gathered to present themselves before the Lord. Now, this whole scene raises a lot of questions, <laughs> a lot more questions about who are these sons of God and, and where is all this taking place and what is, what is Satan doing there in, in God's presence in the midst of all of this? And, and I'll just say that the answer to much of that is we don't exactly know. <laughs> what we do know is that this, this seems to be a divine council. A kind, you, might, you might think of it like a heavenly cabinet meeting taking place in the, in the spiritual realm likely with these sons of God being, being angels or, or God's messengers presenting themselves to the Lord, maybe perhaps to give a report of, or receive instructions for, for their ministry. We don't know, but this is what's happening. We're getting this, this glimpse, this picture, a curtain pulled back just a little bit for us to, to look into what's going on in the spiritual realm while Job is living here on earth. And we'll, we'll see more of that as to come. But among them is Satan, or literally it says the Satan. It's more like a title than it is a name. This is the adversary, the opponent, the accuser. And, and, and later, his name, it becomes the name of God's chief enemy, and, and thus it's used that way here. But he's there in the midst of this council, and God asks him where he's come from. Probably, you know, we kind of hear that and like, where have you come from, Satan? Kind of, we, we assume it's a, it's a challenge. It could just be that God's like, okay, where have you been? All these others are telling us where they've been. Where have you been? What have you been doing? And Satan says, he replies to him, going to and fro on the earth, walking up and down upon it, an early picture of what we hear later in scripture that Satan roams about looking for those whom he might 
destroy or accuse. And it is not as if Satan just shows up and God says, what are you doing here? It's important to see that Satan is accountable to God. Satan is accountable to God. And what we'll see as we look at this over the next weeks is there's no dualism here in this story. It's not as if, it's not as if Satan and God are on equal levels. That we have, we have the epitome of evil here and we have the epitome of good over here. And there's this battle going on and we don't know who's going who's gonna to win. As Martin Luther said, Satan is God Satan. And as we'll see, he is limited in his work to do what God permits. But he is the adversary. He is the opposition and he hates God. And his aim is to oppose and to destroy that which pleases and glorifies God as much as is possible. And as much as he is able which I think makes it significant that God is the one who brings Job to Satan's attention. Satan's not out there going, hey, God, have you considered Job? I'm not sure he loves you that much. No, God is the one that says, Satan, have you considered Job? <laughs> have you seen this man? He is blameless and upright. He's one who fears God and turns away from evil. I like John Piper's illustration of this where he says this is this is like a a jewel thief wandering into a a jewelry store where there's all these these gems around there and the the jeweler comes to him and says hey hey over here have you seen this one the largest most beautiful most valuable gem in all the world God is the one who holds Job on display as a man of integrity, a righteous servant, one of a kind example of one who fears and serves the Lord. And Satan says, ah, he seizes the opportunity to offer a challenge. And it's not a challenge to Job, although he will face his challenges. This is a challenge to God. He says to God, does Job fear you for no reason? Haven't you given him everything he's ever asked for or wanted? Haven't you, doesn't he serve you in order to ensure that, that your continued blessing and your continued protection will, will rest upon him? Again, Satan is pushing the prosperity gospel. <laughs> he's saying he's only serving you because of what you give him. What he has. And Job serves you because he knows you'll make him rich. He knows you'll give him a beautiful family. He knows that you'll keep him in good health and, and give him influence and power in the community. Job doesn't fear you for no reason, God. Your daddy warbucks in his eyes. That's what Satan's saying. And then the challenge stretch out your hand. That's a picture in scripture of do your work. Touch him in all these places and take away all that he has and see, he says, if he doesn't curse you to his face. Once again, Satan takes God's perspective and he twists it. He twists it. Remember in the garden, the challenge that, that Satan there gives was to Eve. And what did he do? He took God's perspective and he twisted it. He said, did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? 
His goal was to get her to question God's goodness, to question his care for her, to to make her think that God just wants to control your life and keep you from enjoying good things and to tempt her and she and Adam to take matters into their own hands, which they did. But here Satan's challenge is not to to Job, not to, to God's creature, but to God himself. And again, he takes God's perspective and he twists it. He says, does Job really fear you? His goal is once again to prove that God is only about controlling and subjugating man and and only remove the blessings that you have given him or the freedom that you have entrusted him with and he will turn his back on you just like Adam and Eve did in the garden. That's That's the crux of the matter here. How can we know Job's faith is genuine, is sincere, is part of who he truly is and not just an allegiance paid for and maintained by a blessed life? How do we know that our faith is, is true and sincere and genuine and that we love God for who he is and not what he does in our life? Well, we have to find out and sometimes the only way to do it is to take away the blessings. God knows what is at stake. He does not put Job up there to to assuage his own ego and say, look, here's somebody who loves me no matter what. He's not doing this to boost his pride. God does not need our worship. He does not need our allegiance. But Satan's challenge is one of the honor and the glory of God himself. And God created Job and he created you and me to, to, to glorify him, to enjoy him, to, to, to live our lives for him. And Satan's challenge is that there is no one, no one who truly does that Simply, Lord, because you are worth it. But because you control them, you give them gifts, you bless their lives, you do good things for them. You see, the accuser here is in effect accusing God. And Job is exhibit number one. And this really is the issue of suffering for the believer. We'll see it as we go along. But as one pastor I heard put it, the question really is, Will you still worship God when all you have is God? Will you still love God when all you have is God? We can't answer that question for ourselves. I can't answer that question for myself. We can say we will. We can pray we will. But we won't really know until we find ourselves in a place where we feel like all we have is God. That's Peter's logic in in 1 Peter where he's talking about the suffering and the various trials that we face in this life that are are there. He says, uh, so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes unless it is tested by fire, would prove to result in the praise and glory of God and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Ultimately, the way we, we know for sure, outside of what God tells us, and that is what we need to, to cling to, but as we live it and experience it in our lives. And that really is the issue here. When the righteous suffer, 
Though Satan would have us crumble under pressure, though he would have us curse God to his face, God is at work in us to produce perseverance and steadfastness in faith that result in continued hope in his gracious love and redemption. And that's what we see as God responds to Satan's challenge with his consent. He says, all, all that Job has is in your hands. Only against him don't stretch out your hand. In other words, take away everything he has. Don't touch him. Now we'll see. He comes back later and goes even further. And we're just told Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we will see the depth of destruction that Satan goes and wreaks in Job's life in the coming weeks. A depth of destruction and pain that we ourselves may have experienced or that we see around us oftentimes in very, very vivid ways. But here, let us see that it is God who gives him consent. It is God who ultimately brings about the suffering in Job's life. Though in no way is he implicated in the evil intent of Satan's work. That's an awful consent, isn't it? We don't like that. We don't want to have to think about that. That raises all kinds of, 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 of questions for us. But brothers and sisters, God's consent is necessary for Satan's attack in our lives. And he gives it only and ultimately for his honor and glory and deep down and over time for Job's and for our good. And we demean the power and the glory of God if we say that, you know what? He's really just trying his best, but there's just some things that are, that are beyond his control. That was Rabbi Kushner's conclusion in the book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. We also misrepresent him if we say, you know what, God is in control of all things. And this is just happening probably because of something that happened, you've done in your life to displease him. That this is happening because of, of some way you weren't faithful or some way you, you did this or that. That's what Job's friends will say. But either way, we cannot get around the fact that God works through suffering to bring about his saving, sanctifying purposes for those who love him and serve him. And Satan's work, as much as they are meant for evil... God uses them for the good of those he loves and who love him. And often that suffering may seem random or pointless or undeserved. But brothers and sisters, our God is not random or pointless or cruel. God loved Job. And he knew Job's heart. And as we'll see, God will, will prove faithful in, in preserving and giving Job the strength to persevere, even through the deepest trials and even as Job is struggling deeply with this. And ultimately, Job's suffering points us to the type of Savior we need. 
his suffering and his obedience and his steadfastness through it, though not perfect, anticipate the suffering and the obedience and the steadfastness of God's very own son, Jesus, the better Job, whom Satan tried as hard as he could to tempt with every promise of of wealth and power and blessing in this world to curse God to his face. And in his obedience, Jesus stood the test and secured, even unto death, secured the ultimate triumph of God's glory and the final defeat of his and our adversary, such that we might know that God is always with us and that God is always working for us in the deepest trials and suffering. Now we're going to see that worked out in the life of Job. And again, it's not, they're, they're, these are not little bullet points that you can just hang on suffering and, and, and deal with all the, that it brings. But they are truths that we cling to and will cling to and that Job will cling to. And so friends, we should expect pain and suffering in our lives. Some of it is understandable. Some of it we might say is deserved in certain situations. But some of it will come for no apparent reason. The Bible could not be more clear that in this life, the righteous will suffer. And Job helps us not only to to see and understand that, but to enter into it ourselves or with others in 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 a manner that is honest, that is open, that is humble and ultimately faithful to the person and the purposes of God. And so again, some of you may be here now and what you're hearing even in this time, even today, is causing lots of questions. Or maybe even bringing up past pain. But know this, that though Satan has asked to sift every single one of us here, We have a Savior who's interceding for us. Jesus is not only praying for us, but he has procured us through his, his death and resurrection and he promises to hold us fast and be with us no matter what Satan might throw at us. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. If you belong to Jesus, you will overcome in Jesus. Won't be easy. (laughs) And it will be a test. And you will not know for sure until you're in the midst of it. But God's promise is true. And we'll see that in the life of Job. So some of you are still feeling painful effects of past suffering, perhaps. And you cannot seem to get through to God, or you still have questions. Friend, know that it's a long journey. But do not disengage. Often through suffering, our response and in our questioning is to run. To step away from God. To step away from God's people. To to isolate ourselves, thinking that no one really understands or, or God doesn't know. Job did not have all the answers. He did not understand all that was happening but he did not give up his cause. 
And he did not run from God, but he ran to God with all his questions. And he wrestled with his friends who often did not give him very good advice. But he wrestled with them and they wrestled with him. He kept engaging with God and with others. And and some of us whose lives are blessed in many ways, we just need to remember we're not immune from suffering. And it will come at some point in some form or fashion. And the question for us is, will we be prepared? I'll end with this. It was a good picture for me as I was studying this week. And we were away at at Bon Clarkin for our our general synod meeting. And at 4.30 in the morning, my phone rang. And it was the alarm company for the alarm at my house. And it said, "The the fire smoke detector is going off in your house. Do you want us to send the fire department? And I was like, I'm 300 miles away. I don't know if there's a fire going on or not. I said, I guess, yes, you should send the fire department. So I just had pictures of these firemen coming and busting down my door and roaring into my neighborhood at 4.30 in the morning, all for a a smoke alarm. And so we have a ring doorbell. And so I waited until the fire department got there. And these two fire trucks pulled out and probably 10 firemen and women got off and they were... They were decked out fully. They had their gas masks on. They had their helmets, their things. They had their hatchets. They were coming up to my doorway and I pushed the doorbell and I said, "Uh, hello. And they kind of stopped and I said, "Uh, uh, yeah, this is the owner of the house. Can I give you the code to get in so you don't break down my door? And they were like, yeah, yeah. And so they went in and, and meanwhile, two or three of them are sitting out front and they're all dressed fully prepared for a fire. And I just reached and I said, Hey guys, I'm sorry y'all had to come out for this. You know, you had to get up out of bed at 4.30 and put on all your equipment and everything else. And they know, no, this is what we do. And we come ready because we don't know if there's going to be a fire or not. We don't wait till we get here to put on our equipment. And brothers and sisters, we can't wait until we're in the midst of suffering to be prepared for how we will handle it. And God prepares us to handle it by giving us Men like Job and experiences like some of you have experienced in order to, to, to prepare us and to work in us through those times. And so as we enter into this study of Job, let us keep our hearts and our minds fixed on what God wants to do, whether we're in the midst of suffering or not, to prepare us and to help us to minister with and to one another through that. So let us pray together. Father, we thank you. For this book, we thank you for this man. We do not know him. We cannot imagine what he went through. But you have given us this and preserved it over time in history for the purpose that we might understand better this life, the world we live in, and the kind of people we want to be and the kind of Savior that we need and that you are in Christ Jesus. So go before us in this study. Take even what we've heard here this morning, Lord, and use it for your glory and for our good. Minister to those right now, Lord, who maybe have many why questions. And even if you don't answer them fully, help them to know that you indeed are the answer. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.